0: As I got out of bed this morning, my first thought was, boy, I need a nap. (laughs) That immediately took me to many of you who served so faithfully over the weekend. Um, We couldn't have done the playground without you men, and uh, Mike in particular, I know a lot of work is done uh, behind the scenes out of your house for that. Uh, The same is true for the clothing swap. I mean, we are out to win souls for Christ. And we'll do it through giving away clothing. Uh, So thank you, Emily. That's a lot of work. Um, I'm your mom, full-time. And a lot of work goes in to get that ready to go. So thank you to all of our volunteers as well. Many hours went into preparing and then to delivering. And I'd ask you this week to to be praying as you think of it. Uh, Be praying for the follow-up that only the Lord can do in the hearts of people from the swap. And you never know what he might do through a playground piece. So we'll be praying for that this week. Well, it's been said, as you may have heard, that if you like what you do, you never have to work a day in your life. Well, the reality is that many people don't have that experience. In fact, it's even sadder that some at one point did and have lost that love, the love for their job or their career or whatever it may be. People are interested in these things, and there are many statistics that bear that out. Presently, there are statistics that reveal happiness in the workplace is at an all-time low. It's quite a rare experience. And of even more recent interest is some of the reasons for that. Now, the number one factor in determining job satisfaction concerns respect. A survey from last year revealed that 82% of people over multiple industries, they would quit their jobs due to a bad boss. But what if, for just a moment, what if someone can't quit? Suppose that someone is in a position, and let's just say that position is more than just income and benefits and personal happiness. I would say that for the Christian, God has greater goals than those things for the worker. And this is true not only for you and I in our day, But at the time at which Peter wrote, Peter calls these people servants or slaves. Our message today comes from 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Now, a passage like that sounds like there is very little for you and I. I mean, no doubt, there are jobs we work where it does feel a bit slavish, We could draw the connecting line. But again, this is the first century. That's when Peter writes, we are in the 21st century. But I contend that while the conditions are different, many similarities do exist. For example, who among us has not been unjustly hurt in the workplace? Maybe we've been wrongly treated. I bet we bear a similar response Is our reflex to simply endure the mistreatment and to bless that boss? Or do we turn passive-aggressive and slander? How many of us feel like we need to win? We go head-to-head with the workplace boss. We need to deliver justice, whatever that might look like. Taken all together, if you look at it as one nonstop figure, the average American will spend the most hours of his or her life in bed. And second place is the workplace. That means that this is ground zero. It is first place for our Christian witness. If we name Jesus as Lord of our lives this morning, then we're asking, what does he want of me in my workplace? Well, our answer is designed this morning to do just that answer what god wants for me in the workplace this morning's message is two daily tasks of the employee of jesus christ now i will concede that not everyone here today is an employee not all of us have an employer some of us this morning are retirees or homemakers Some of us this morning are are homeschool teachers or we're temporarily unemployed. Maybe there's young people who will one day work for a mean boss. We also have people here who are managers and bosses themselves. They don't quite fit Peter's audience as cleanly. Well, I believe there's a message for all of us here. And by the time we get through it to the end, I hope to make that clear how, in fact, this passage applies to all of us in our different seasons of life. I want to begin in verse 18, and we'll say quite simply that to submit is to obey. To submit is to obey. In verse 18, Peter writes, "Servants, Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, what we do in our preaching is go back to the time in which people lived, and we need to do that this morning. To better understand how this matters in our day, we need to see what it was like in their day. We go back to the time of the first century servant. Now, keep in mind that Peter writes to exiles. These are people who, because of their faith in Jesus, are alienated from the world, They're not like those around them. They're pilgrims passing through this world. Their destination, their country, it's heaven. Inevitably, they have to ask how do they live obediently for Jesus? How do we do this? How do we live in this strange place, this in between world? Well, last week we began to answer that, at least in relationship to the government. What do we do when it comes to the governing authorities? But Peter now shifts, and he turns to the household. He turns to servants in verse 18. A little later in chapter 3, verse 1, he'll address wives. And then later in verse 7, husbands. You see, the household is very important to Roman society, which is good. That's a good thing. As believers, we know more than that, that it's the very building blocks upon which God builds societies. It's the household or the family. So, Peter addresses some of the members of the household. In the case today, it's slaves or servants. That first word of verse 18 will appear in your Bibles as servants or slaves or household slaves. I do want to note it's not the normal word for slaves in the New Testament. That word, in fact, is used back in verse 16. You can look right back there. We were to use our freedom as slaves of God. That's the normal word for slaves in the Bible. But in verse 18, the word is actually closer to the word for house. It's a lot closer to house than it is the Greek word for slave. That's because, again, Peter writes to house servants. These are personal attendants or slaves of a household. In Roman culture, the family servant was considered part of the family or part of the household. This slavery, as it existed in Rome, it's the Roman Empire, it came as a result of military victories. The more successful the conquest, the more slaves available to society. So as the empire grew, slavery grew. Now, we need to take off our American history glasses for one moment. Slavery at this time was not about skin color. It's not the antebellum South. We don't want to confuse American history with Rome. It's two different types of things. Rather, for Rome, it was a matter of conquered peoples. We might call them prisoners of war. In my reading, sources seem pretty split on the experience of slaves in the time. For example, one commentator says, quote, Many slaves lived miserably, particularly those who served in the mines, we can imagine. They could suffer brutal mistreatment at the hands of their owners. Children born in slavery belonged to masters, not their parents. Slaves had no legal rights, and masters could beat them, brand them, and abuse them. Well, on the other hand, some write quite favorably of slavery in Rome. Quote, most persons in slavery were treated well. They had been born in the house of their owner, and they had been trained to perform important tasks, domestic, industrial, business, or public. In summary, it sounds to me like a lot dependent on the master, what kind of owner he or she was, their attitudes and proclivities and so on. Sadly, I believe Aristotle probably summarizes it best, probably how they thought at the time, writing, "...there can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things, indeed not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards the slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave." So in the end... To be a servant or a slave, that term hardly mattered. And that's what makes today's passage so significant. Because when Peter writes addressing slaves as their own unique group, he infuses in them worth and dignity and value. You will notice in the context that he also addresses citizens in verse 13. He'll talk about wives and husbands in chapter 3. He puts slaves on the same tier as these other groups. And more than that, in verse 19, he'll write that they can suffer unjustly. Aristotle isn't even hearing that argument. An argument like that will make a statue fall over. But we also ask, why doesn't Peter go farther here? I mean, shouldn't Christianity overthrow slavery? Shouldn't Peter and Paul, for that matter, these two leading voices of faith, they've lit the fire of the gospel? It's traveling faster than a prairie fire with a tailwind. Shouldn't they be calling for the overthrow of slavery? Complete abolition? Well, you and I, keep in mind, we live in an age of activism our society is constructed in such a way as if we see a problem we can address it there are many avenues to do that and to fix things we have protests and petitions and we have demonstrations and boycotts and strikes we have sit-ins and we have walkouts activists rally and occupy and riot and cancel and march and tweet and post where is peter and where is paul on these things Surprisingly, this is not the Bible's approach to first century slavery. The Bible seems much more concerned about how Christians relate to where God has placed them. So in conversations about why, why didn't the New Testament authors, why didn't they call for abolition, I see at least two possible answers. First, a revolt would be almost impossible. The Roman army, keep in mind, was a highly sophisticated fighting machine. To be sure, there were slave revolts in the Roman Empire. They just never ended well. One example was the second servile revolt. That was a slave uprising in a place called Sicily. 40,000 slaves were defeated by the Roman army. You and I also know quite a bit about the execution means for slavery, for our Lord was crucified too. And besides all that, the faith, the Christian faith, is just taking off. It's just getting started. And Rome is already looking at us sideways. Some speculate the church could not have endured any kind of promotion like this, directing slaves to rise up and to challenge their masters. Well, secondly, social activism is not the focus of biblical Christianity. Evidently, Peter and Paul did not believe that abolishing social norms would win people to Jesus. Because that, again, is the focus of biblical Christianity. As a reminder, Christianity is not a campaign for our personal rights. It is a campaign to make the name of Jesus great. That's what we do. It's a campaign to save the lost from hell. The main question is not so much how can we rally to overthrow mistreatment, but rather how can I respond biblically to mistreatment? I wonder if the church in our day spent as much time evangelizing and praying as she does bemoaning all the ways we're mistreated by the world if the society itself would not actually then transform Because that's what the Bible says, brings change. It happens from the inside, and it works its way out. Now, it may be easy to look back at Peter and Paul, 20 centuries removed, with some air of sophistication, and say to them, you know, you guys missed your opportunity. But I contend that they were centuries ahead in their thinking. Read Philemon as an example. In that letter, Paul writes on behalf of an escaped slave. His name is Onesimus. And the story is quite fascinating. It just so happened that Onesimus escaped from his master in Colossae, and he boarded a boat and went to Rome. And it just so happened in a city of a million people that he bumped into a man named Paul. And it just so happened that he comes to faith through Paul's preaching Jesus Christ. And it just so happens that he had a certain skill set that Paul could use, and Paul brought him under his employment. And it just so happens that Onesimus, an escaped slave, is sent back by Paul. Paul sends him back, not appealing to his master Philemon to free him, but to treat him as a brother. This is the New Testament's way of thinking about changing society, about changing relationships. You see, the Christianity didn't seek to overthrow Roman slavery, but instead it sought to transform the world through it. Now, the gospel is spreading in this time, and all kinds of people are coming to saving faith, including slaves or house servants. And salvation, it levels the playing field for them. It levels the playing field for everyone. It's going to break down barriers. It's going to upset these social norms and these class systems. Paul writes in Galatians 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus unites God's children in his family, regardless of their label or their status. And for first century Rome, this is radical. I mean, this, this is revolutionary. And this is also disturbing. Just imagine yourself for a moment as the master of a house with slaves in your employment. And you're looking at the neighbors who have just come to faith in this Jesus fellow. And the master over there has come to faith, and so have his slaves. And they head off on the first day of the week to some place to worship someone they can't see. And when they gather there, the slave is something called the elder who leads the entire thing with the master and other masters under him. And when they get home, the roles reverse. And on top of that, you hear rumors about the slaves calling someone else lord, not their master. This is only a matter of time before there's a huge revolt. This is very worrisome. Imagine for a moment if we're in the position of the servant. The servant, the slave, has a new religion, has new morals, has new hope. This threat of death, it's lost its sting. I've come to faith in Jesus. I have a new birth. New birth means new life. New life means new freedom. New liberty means no slavery. No slavery. But Peter has a different word. He says, be submissive to your masters with all respect. We encountered this command last week. We are to submit to governing authorities. And to submit is to willingly, voluntarily, put ourselves under someone else. Now, verse 18 is going to issue both the command as well as the means or the attitude to fulfill it. We're to submit with all respect, better translated with all, fear. So far in First Peter, fear has been our attitude or is to be our attitude toward God. And by that I mean, by fear I mean we're to be revering God or... reverentially respecting God, to have an awe of God. It's that type of fear. In fact, if you look back one verse, verse 17, it's a command. Fear God. Going back even chapter 1, verse 17, there the command was to conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth. And the recipient of that fear is called our Father or the one who judges impartially. You know, I say all that because some believe in verse 18 that the reverence is to be toward the master. The slave is to revere or fear the master. And I believe there's a consequence of that meaning here. But I think this sees beyond the master and it speaks about God. Because a fear of God will result in a fear of the master. Not in the same way, not on the same level. But if we're respecting God and we're respecting his will for us, then we will follow through on this relationship it's just like the call to submit to the state we don't always submit to the state because there's something inherently good and wonderful about the state but because god tells us to and that's god's will for our lives and we remember that god has all authority and as we revere him we'll follow his commands to implement that In addition to that, the presence of this command to fear God, it happened just one verse ago. That's pretty strong support for that interpretation here. And I think the Greek word order, I think that seals the deal. Literally, this is read, servants, be submissive in all fear to your masters. So the servant submits to the master because the servant submits to God. The Christian submits to the boss because the Christian fears God. And like everything else in this life, you and I know that it's not ultimately about me and the boss, it's ultimately about me and God. And that applies to so many areas of our lives. Because as you may know, bosses can be a real mixed bag, and many different types. And Peter continues submit not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Uh, The first boss of these two is going to be a real delight. Here's a boss of morality. A boss who has values. Maybe he's a Christian boss. Maybe he's polite, non-vulgar. Maybe he's compassionate and quite generous with his deadlines. I bet this boss treats you like a person and not simply an employee. But the second boss... Well, we wish Peter's pen would have run out of ink. We must also submit to those who are unreasonable, or cruel, and unjust. Bosses who are harsh. The word for unreasonable comes over in English as scoliosis. It's a crookedness. It's a morally curved boss, if you will. In the workplace, these men and women are profane. They're severe, they're unkind. They're somewhat cold. Maybe they're very demanding or they're proud. Maybe they're even somewhat perverted. Maybe they don't like you and they're ungrateful for the work that you do. Keep in mind, as a backdrop to all of this, Peter's audience, these household servants, they didn't endure eight hours and go home. They couldn't clock out and get away. They interacted with this boss, this master, 24 hours a day, every day of the week. Verse 18, I think this is a real challenge for us. These things that Peter calls us to do, we don't normally think this way. When it comes to a bad boss, the first reflex is to think about my rights, and then secondly, a new job. Verse 18 is quite revolutionary, and it's a revolutionary command for first century servants, though not in the way we would think about revolution. But I want to bring this into our world as well. We're 21st century servants. Workplace employees. So what does this look like for those in our day? Well, I'd say first, we need to take this and we need to go and work hard. We need to be hard workers. One statistic records the average employee is productive for two hours and 53 minutes each day. Employees spend up to 32% of their time on Facebook. Well, God didn't make us for that. God made us to work. And Proverbs repeatedly praises and elevates diligence and repeatedly condemns laziness. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men. You see, when we work hard, we do it for God. We honor God and God's call upon our lives. That's why we work hard. As the boss may be nice, he may not be, but we do it for reasons greater than the boss. We do it for the Lord and we do it from the heart. Secondly, in the workplace as believers, we ought to speak rightly. We ought to speak rightly. James calls the tongue a fire. This is a fire that we carry about wherever we go. We need to be very careful about setting things on fire with our tongues. Because I contend that fires, many fires begin in the workplace due to the tongue. By controlling the tongue, we're able to show submission to our employers. For example, the tongue is perpetuating in the workplace that we versus them mentality, where it's like us employees versus the boss. And there's a lot of like gossip and slander and dirtiness that comes with those conversations. The tongue spreads workplace gossip. The tongue spreads lies. It tears down the boss. Proverbs twenty one, verse twenty three tells us he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. And more than that, we should just assume that the boss knows who speaks what. The boss probably knows who's diligent and who spreads dissent. So to submit is to be a part unlike those who use the tongue as a fire. And to submit is to use our speech for good and in good ways. Well, thirdly, in the workplace, another way to apply this would be to stop attacking. The guerrilla warfare of the office environment is passive-aggressive behavior. This is deceptive behavior, it's hypocritical behavior, and it's sin. Passive-aggressive embodies the very sins that you and I are supposed to be killing. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Put aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Passive-aggressive dumps gas on those sins. And it's going to promise to keep you and I out of conflict, but really at the same time, it's waging war. Now the goal of this behavior is to to resist, but without confronting. And that's the very opposite of what Peter's calling for today. He says we are to live in a way that exhibits submissiveness or submission, not resistance. More than that, if we have a problem we should go and talk to the boss about it god says you shall not hate your brother in your heart but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him that's leviticus 19 17. well along that line lastly what does it look like to apply this in the workplace fourthly we should be sincere be sincere ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 slaves Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You know one of the recurring themes of the Bible is integrity, that the inside matches the outside, that Who we purport to be is actually who we are. It's God who cares not that that we have submitted to the boss only, but also in how we submit to the boss. The heart matters. In this verse, God calls us to a sincerity of heart, doing His will from the heart. And one of the challenges that believers is going to face, even when we submit, even when we do the right thing, is that we won't be appreciated. After all, Christian history is not known for promotions and for parades. And we need to know that when we obey God, it may very well bring suffering. So our second point this morning in verses 19 and 20, to submit is to suffer. To submit is to obey, and to submit is to suffer. Peter writes, For this finds favor... If, for the sake of conscience toward God, a believer bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Sometimes, submission will be hard. And when you suffer for submission, God is thankful. Peter states this twice, at the beginning of verse 19 and the end of verse 20. God notices what you're doing. In fact, the word for favor is the same word we translate as grace. God's grace is upon you. God is taking pleasure in you. God is commending you for your stand, for your obedience. A scenario in verse 19 is... a a servant or an employee, someone is suffering unjustly, they're they're feeling the pain of that, but they are fully focused on God. Now, there's two main ways to understand the phrase conscience toward God. And in English, they're so close, I'm going to try not to mix them up, so bear with me here. The first has to do with our conscious as opposed to our unconscious. That means we are aware of something. That means the interpretation is that the believer is aware of God. In this experience that he or she is having, there's an awareness of God. The second has to do with the conscience. It's that little voice inside that is helping us determine what is right and what is wrong, that conscience. If this is the sense, the meaning has to do with how far do we go. Because inevitably we're going to ask, how do I know when to submit and how far is too far? Now the first meaning includes the second meaning. So if I am aware of God's will, if I am conscious of it, I have a strong understanding of his word. If I have those things, I will not only be able to submit, but I will know in what instances I should submit and in what instances I should not. It's going to trigger my conscience. Hopefully, I don't have you too twisted up on that, but that's the distinction in this passage. And verse 20 is going to take then what Peter said in verse 19 and it's going to elaborate on it. After all, we need to really define what submission is. To be clear, as believers, we are going to be called to suffer. There's two things guaranteed from the moment of faith. The first is that you'll spend eternity with God in heaven, And the second is that you will suffer for being a Christian. Acts chapter 14, verse 22 through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But notice here there's a difference between suffering for obedience and suffering for disobedience. Of those two, we always want to be in the former category. Suffering from obedience is going to receive God's favor. Suffering from obedience should be considered holy, verse 19. Suffering from obedience receives credit. But that second category, suffering from disobedience, all well, this may be God's loving discipline. It should be considered sinful in verse 20, and it receives no credit. May we suffer for doing right and not doing what is wrong. In our passage, we could suffer for submitting. For example, the boss has asked you to do something. Maybe he's been unkind or ungracious. Maybe he's asking you to do things that are kind of over the top, very extensive, really not equipped to do it. He's singling you out, but you do it and you suffer. That's one type of submission. But we could also suffer for not submitting. In some cases, we would argue it would be sin to submit. And other parts of the Bible are going to inform this. Maybe the boss has asked you to break the law. I mean, that's setting up a conflict between what do I do per the word and what do I do per the boss? You want to follow the Lord on those scenarios. And maybe he's asked you to sin, doing what, what God forbids or asking you to do something that God has told us not to do. But either way, doing what is right, if we're living for God, it's going to bring suffering. I want to insert just one more thought on that while we're on the topic, and it has to do with our freedom. Because it sounds somewhat constrained in all of this talk about submission. We talked about it last Sunday, and we're on it again today. But I contend that when we follow God on this, there is freedom in this. Now, we already acknowledged that God grants us freedom. When we become believers, we are freed. Again, it starts in the heart and it works its way out. Back in verse 16, we learned that all believers are to use their freedom as bond slaves or servants of God. But you know what isn't freedom in these situations? Rebellion. Or resistance. Or revenge. You see, if you've been treated unjustly, and you respond in like manner to that person, that is not freedom. That is bondage. That is enslavement to the one who mistreats you. That means that your conduct is based on someone else's conduct. If that person's nice, I'm nice. If that person's mean, I'm mean. That isn't freedom. That's bondage. When you respond rightly, when you respond biblically, you are free. You are not bound. And this is a truth that applies not only in the master-slave relationship or the employee-employer, it applies in many avenues of life. In summary, we heard some good instruction today for this household servant. And I know culture separates you and I from them, from some exact application. I think there's some pretty good ways it fits into the modern-day workplace, how it impacts the employer and the employee. But at the same time, I wonder if I haven't raised a few questions rather than answered them. So I just want to go through three practical questions that I may have raised throughout today's message. First, how do I know when to submit and how do I know when not to? Well, as a general rule, you should almost always submit. That's the main idea of today's passage. But at the same time, there's times where we would not do that. We know for example that your body belongs to the Lord first and foremost. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19, Paul writes, "Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own." In the second place, even further, if you're married, your body belongs to your spouse. For those married, your body belongs to your spouse. Paul writes, "The wife does not have authority over her own body." but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And this helps to answer some of the more obvious ones. I mean, we don't submit in cases of physical abuse or sexual harassment. That's obvious, and there's good support for that. And I think in our text and the surrounding context, we have even more clues. A couple of directives to answer the question, when shouldn't I submit? Well, first in verse 12, going back, Consider for a moment your witness. Peter writes, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? So they might glorify God in the day of visitation. Enduring mistreatment, it wins people to Christ. This gives legs to our profession of faith. People see that what we are preaching means something to us. We're going to stick with it when it gets hard, when it gets rough. It's also helpful to consider how not submitting, how that might impact our witness. It's just something to consider to answer the question. Secondly, consider your motives. Is this situation is this about God or is this about me? Is this about my rights or my liberties? Is this about revenge or office justice? There's just some questions to consider as well. What are my motives in not submitting? Well, thirdly, it's helpful, in verse 20, to consider whether my treatment, my mistreatment, is deserved. I mean, maybe you did something to deserve it. You've got to remember that the gospel doesn't turn us into perfect employees. We're still going to make mistakes in the workplace. We're still going to sin. In fact, we may need to go to the boss and apologize, which may, by the way, be quite good for your Christian witness. So, these are just a few thoughts on how to think through scenarios for submission. There's so many, it's impossible to cover them, but maybe some thoughts on what to do when this topic comes up. Well, secondly, what if I'm not an employee? Not everyone in here is employed in the workforce this morning. Some here this morning are employers. Well, the Bible says, according to my translation, don't be a tyrant. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. I guess it'd be helpful to imagine the roles reversed. Assume that you, the boss, are actually the employee. The hope would be that you're providing an environment where submission and following you is easy to do and not hard. You want to lead in a way that that fosters submission. Some here this morning are retired. How does this possibly apply to you? Well, simply be the church. Be the church to people who are employed, who are employees under employers. Support your brothers and sisters in their secular work. Listen, there are believers here this morning who have a very hard time in their jobs. This is a difficult command to apply. It's hard to obey this passage. Help them. Ask them questions. Our culture's already working for you on this. What do we talk about when we see people? How you doing? Hey, how's work going? Keep going with that. Get into their life a little bit and discover how things are going and support them and encourage them. Some this morning are homemakers. Your stay-at-home moms. Homeschool teachers. You can apply this by asking your husbands about their work. And as he starts to tell you about his work, as he starts to open up about it, and he starts to talk about the troubles at work, and you discover that he's part of the troubles at work, (laughs) tell him the truth. Don't affirm his sin. want to make sure that as spouses, we're able to do that with one another. It's not always easy, and peace is important. We need to be open and honest. That's why God has given us to one another. And I believe that wives, as they ask these things and they're able to get to the core of these things, they're going to have a platform to speak into his life in ways that no one else is able to. Well, thirdly, where is is the Lord when my boss stinks? Well, the answer to this theologically is that he is... Ever present, and He is absolutely sovereign. God is always with us, and He's in control. But it's worth reminding you this morning that God is at work in your life on numerous levels. That God is working out your sanctification in all kinds of ways, not just ones that feel good. He may be doing a work through you, through the hard things at work in the heart of your boss. There may be people in the workplace who are watching you, who are listening to you. Maybe he's working in them. The list can go on and on and on. Well, this morning, the Lord is calling us to follow his example. After all, every Christian follows a master who became a servant and died a slave's death. The powerful example is coming in verse 21, we might even say it's its own sermon. It's empowering truth we'll explore next time. Let's pray together this morning. Father, it is hard at times to submit. At times, Lord, it it is not, and we are thankful May we not forget to see that as a grace. But I pray, Father, for us this morning that those in the workplace that are under employers and having a hard time, Lord, that you would help them today to to find renewal, to find new strength, to receive grace. I pray for all of us. Maybe this doesn't quite fit perfectly, how our lives are situated in this season of life. But I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would apply it to people's hearts. Maybe we know how to help other people, or you might have an insight for us in some other way. Lord, you alone know. And we're thankful for your word, and we pray that it would bless us and cleanse us and make us more like Christ. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.